but there are many people like Robin Williams and other people who have a smile on their face or it seems like everything's great and there's other things going on. And, and that doesn't mean that there's not warning signs, but there's just more to people than I think we, you know, always see. This episode is about personal loss and suicidality overall. So here's your content notice. Today's guest is Elise. Elise is a therapist, a social worker, a wife, a mom, a relatable human, and a lot more. Mental health is extremely important to her because she's been there. Maybe not in your shoes, but she has been through some really difficult times. And if she can't relate, chances are she can at least empathize. Shout out to her trauma. When Elise was 10 years old, she lost her mom to suicide. And unfortunately, during that experience, she got to see firsthand how stigmatized suicide and mental health challenges can be. So here she is now, adulting like no other, with a passion to break stigmas around mental health and to support others along their journey towards personal growth. On this episode, we will dive in to the truth about suicide, loss, and trauma. We will learn about Elisa's story, about the story of so many people who try to find a better solution than one that they've found so far for their pain. And we learn about how having constant suicidal thoughts should not be normal and you deserve to receive the help and live in peace mentally, physically, socially, interpersonally, and existentially. As always, we're so glad that you exist, and we truly hope that this episode will be helpful. Enjoy. Elise, you truly are one of my favorite people on Instagram, because I just feel like we really align. And I don't even know why I'm saying on Instagram, because we've met in person, but thank you for being here today. Absolutely. So happy to. I actually love that we've met in person because I feel like it makes this like, I just feel like I'm, you know, having lunch with you. Yeah. Right. It does feel like that. Mm-hmm. Except we did have a little bit of a conversation before we hit record. We <laughs> Not everybody gets to know everything. <laughs> Some stuff has to be left there, you know? Definitely. We are talking about a really heavy topic today. Heavy for the human species, heavy for you, heavy mm-hmm. for anybody who's had any type of personal experience with it. So before we get to that, please tell me about you as a human. Anything that like we couldn't find online. I love that because it immediately makes you like take off any of these hats that when people typically say like, tell me about yourself, you're like so quick to be like, this is what I do for work, blah, blah, blah. So yeah, I love that idea of what you wouldn't find online is that I'm a mom to two little kids. So I have a five-year-old and a two-year-old. And that's a huge part of like who I am just as a person now. And I love playing soccer and I'm super like goofy. And, you know, I describe myself as like weird and awkward sometimes. And I don't feel like that always is like portrayed online as much, but yeah, I just feel like I'm just like a normal, weird, quirky person. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. And tell me about your why. And, and honestly, this whole episode, I feel like is going to kind of be an answer to that question. So I think what I would like to ask, and then of course, whatever answer you, you already have planned. I'm like, this is what I want you to say. (laughs) I'm just curious about, so your why in general, but then your why for maybe it's the same. I'm like, I kind of know her, but I have to real, I should pretend like you don't. The listeners don't. (laughs) Why high school students currently? So kind of both. Okay. So yes, I would say most of my why will be like, you know, captured here. But so when I was 10 years old, I lost my mom to suicide. 
I genuinely don't, there was not this like, oh, okay, I lost my mom and I'm going to be a therapist one day. That was definitely never like how it happened. It just kind of, I feel like life just kind of put me there and I'm a big believer in like the universe and putting me where I think I need to be. But that's like a huge reason why I ended up in this field. And it's been like a really interesting kind of trajectory because initially when I went into social work, I just wanted to work for child welfare services. I like love the investigation side of things. And I almost related like my experience of like when I lost my mom, I had been living primarily with my mom and stepdad and half siblings and then one full biological brother up until I was 10 years old when my mom died. So when she died, I switched houses and I began living primarily with my dad and my stepmom and those half siblings and my brother and not at all like the same as going into foster care. I'm moving in with another family that loves me, that knows me. But truthfully, up until that point, I mean, I saw my dad like every other weekend, like I didn't know him that well. And that was initially my like kind of relatability or connection to like wanting to work with foster youth was just like this experience of like, if this was my experience like this, like, what is that experience like for them on a whole other level? Yeah. And just from there, like kind of going down this path now of doing what I'm doing with high school students, I don't really fully know. Like, sometimes I'm like, how, did I like consciously choose to be here? Like, was like, how did this happen? But I'm, I'm here. Mm-hmm. So my whole plan was, you know, to get licensed as a licensed clinical social worker. And there was lots of benefits of going into the schools, but what I love so, so much about working with teens is just like one, I think they are so misunderstood and they're in such this, like stuck in this place of like, not quite a kid anymore, but they're not quite an adult. And then yet people have these expectations to treat them like they're still a kid when it's convenient and then treat them like they should know better and should do X, Y, and Z and should be this adult. And it's like, I just feel like it's this constant push pull of like, where do I belong? Yeah. And so many of these kids, it's like when we start to see mental illness and mental health symptoms start to really like kind of come to light. And this is like people's first experience, maybe really recognizing that something different is going on for them. And so I love being able to be in a place where I'm like accessible to a lot of these kids who maybe they have a preconceived idea of what a therapist is or what they do. And so just to get to be somebody on campus that like to test the waters, even sometimes of like, okay, like what is this and what is it going to be? And here's my fears and exploring that. So it's become just a really cool place to be because I think it's, it takes a certain type of person for teens to buy into. And I'm not a lot of things, but I think I am that for kids. Like, I think that kids really like are drawn to me and like, listen to what I have to say. They always think I'm so much younger than I am. So it's just like a bonus. I get like my confidence (laughs) lifted up there too, but I love it. I love that. Though that's a really incredible, that those are incredible reasons. Those are incredible whys. Shifting gears. We need to define the keywords of this episode. And I think the reason for that is people can perceive these words in different ways. Mm-hmm. And honestly, there's like so many definitions of so many words. And we should clarify what we mean when we're talking about what we're talking about today. So the three words that I want to define to sort of set up this topic are suicide, loss, and trauma. So when I, suicide, right, is to me like the death that's caused by some type of self-infliction with the intention of dying, right? Mm -hmm. So somebody is choosing to take their life. So 
you know, we hear of these unintentional overdoses where if somebody's intention was right, that's not a suicide. So to me, it's really, it has to have that intention of this person no longer wants to live and is in some means taking their life through a behavior that's going to execute that plan. Loss is like such an interesting word to define to me because for me, I immediately go to like the grief and loss, right? Like losing somebody by a death. But I think that loss can be the loss of a relationship. It doesn't have to mean somebody has died. It could just mean the end of something, right? And people experience that very different. It could be somebody going to prison, all these different things of there's been some type of loss or break in a relationship. It's kind of how I define that. And then trauma, my favorite definition of trauma is always anything that overwhelms the brain's ability to cope because I think it's so subjective, right? And I know you know that, but like how people experience trauma is so different. And I love just, I think it kind of gives a lot of room for people that if they're like, well, so-and-so experienced that and that wasn't how they took it. I'm like, well, but how did you take it? And how was your experience and how was your ability to cope with it? Because that's what matters. Mm -hmm. So that one has always really stuck with me. Those were wonderful definitions. Thank you. Actually seemed like the ease that you had answering those. I don't usually get as much ease (laughs) from my guests (laughs) because it's complicated, right? But but you did such a great job. Thank you so much. So diving in a little bit to some facts on our topic before we dive into the discussion itself. Do you have any statistics on how many people die by suicide, take their lives each year? Yeah. So it actually, like when I was looking more into these statistics, I wanted to see, cause I'm, I'm very familiar with kind of like the more local in the U S but almost not a million, but I'm going to round up. So over 700,000 annually people in the world die by suicide. Jeez. And it's kind of crazy. I almost like wish I could get like a picture, like what does that look like? Right. And I don't remember the exact statistic, but I saw something about in the U S I think it was in the statistics from 2019 that the rates for suicide basically almost like doubled that of homicide. And I think that's like a huge perspective shift because we hear about homicide all the time and we don't always hear about suicide unless it's, you know, for the most part, somebody like well-known. Yeah. What I find so fascinating when it comes to talking about statistics too, is I went to a training maybe a few months ago. Oh gosh. I know his last name Joyner. I think it's Thomas Joyner. Maybe he's like an expert in suicide. He lost his dad to suicide and has pretty much spent his like career, um, researching and, um, he's a suicide expert. And he talked about how the rates for suicide during times of crisis. So I'm just going to speak to like COVID in general, typically decline because in the like theories that there's like this sense of togetherness. So I thought that was fascinating. Like, obviously we don't have 2021 data yet. I think maybe 2020 came out. Um, and overall there was like this huge increase of suicide rates in like the earlier 2000s up until 2018. And then there's been a decline since then, at least between 19 and 20, mm-hmm. but 30%, even like that increase. So even though like, maybe we've gone down, like, right, what right. is that comparable to? Like we went up 30%. So it's yeah. obviously still just a huge, huge issue. Yes. How has the discussion of suicide changed over the years, like publicly? And like, you know, I feel like I want the listeners to be thinking about this too. Like, what have you heard about it in the public? If you're, if you're a mental health professional, like how often is it talked about? So as you're listening, just see what else comes up for you too. And if you have anything to share on it, then like, 
take a screenshot of this right now and like, let us know, tag us. We'll give you our stuff at the end. But yeah, from, in your opinion, Elise, how has the discussion changed with the public and our profession? It's almost, I like, love this opportunity to make it personal too, because I immediately go back to, so my mom died in 1999. This is when like AOL instant messenger was like huge. Right. I mean, I was only 10 at the time, but even just from what I know and just from like what I've heard and like the stereotypes are super stigmatized, especially then pretty sure my mom may have been struggling with some postpartum depression that wasn't really talked about. I don't know what kind of screening, like what was she going through to assess all these things? So not just the conversation of suicide in and of itself, but all these like risk factors and warning signs, like, did people know what to look for? We're obviously now, like, especially I live and breathe this now, but you can find this all over. If you go to search suicide, you're going to get Google searches with hotline numbers and these types of things. And I wonder, was that happening then? Right. I know from hearing later that when detectives have like gone and like gone through my mom's computer and stuff, she was in chat rooms actually talking to people about this and people were encouraging the behavior. And I just always think about like, you know, in some ways, I think this is where like these monitoring systems come in where like had instant messenger recognized the word suicide come up, maybe a hotline number would have popped up on the side or are you in need of help, right? Something where I feel like that's a little bit more like of things that we have in place now. So overall, I just feel like there's been this big shift of like, we don't talk about it and that's bad, Um, especially religious like background is like, you're going to hell if you do this to there being a really big shift to like, no, we do talk about it. And I know there's still stigma around it, but it does feel like it's a lot more casual. Like you can ask any kid on my high school campus for sure, probably middle school. And they can tell you a little bit about suicide and not just from like a hush hush perspective, but I've learned about it in this way, or I've seen this, something like that. So I want to talk about your personal lived experience Mm -hmm. um, with suicide. Please share anything you are comfortable with. I will ask questions along the way. Well, and I will first preface with, I am like so open about it. So if there's a question, like, please don't hesitate to ask either. And it's such, it's so interesting sitting on this side of it. And I will tell those of you that listen, that have experienced trauma, I intellectualize everything, which means I get really into my head. I can sit here and tell you like the facts all day long. But if I were to pause and you were to be like, oh, tell me about how that made you feel, right? It's a whole different conversation. What I think is so interesting about like having this experience is that when I think of someone, take off my social work hat, therapy hat, whatever, that's suicidal. Even if I put that hat back on, I have a certain idea in my mind of what that looks like. And I will tell you that that was so not my mom. So obviously there's, I'm 10, I'm a kid, like you're, you know, living in your ego. Like I'm not thinking of anybody but myself. Right. I had a really good childhood. Like my mom was a great mom. She stayed at home with us. Like I'm talking like brown paper lunch bags with hearts on it and handwritten notes. Like she loved us so much. I know she had a really traumatic upbringing herself, lots of abuse by her dad. So like, obviously just, I think of attachment and all these different things that impacted her going into being a mom. And then she became a mom really young. She had my brother, at, I think she was 17 when she was pregnant. He was born right when she had turned 18, me in her early twenties. And then it was just, she had two more kids later. And, you know, it's just, it was a lot. And I just think it's so interesting because if 
if you were to have known her or anybody, right, we see these people that die by suicide. It's just, you wouldn't expect that. And I say this too, because I get this a lot, like, no, they would never. And I'm like, but who, who in your mind are the people that do? And I think it's important to remember that because there's obviously like when you see a movie and somebody's struggling, right? Like there's always, yes, some people who express themselves in more dark clothing and, you know, thick black cat eyeliner. Like, yes, there is a stereotype of people who express themselves in a way that truly does often represent what they're feeling inside. But there are many people like Robin Williams and other people who have a smile on their face or it seems like everything's great. And there's other things going on. And, and that doesn't mean that there's not warning signs, but there's just more to people than I think we, you know, always see. But it's just really interesting how this experience happened because, you know, I was at school. So my mom died in June. So I was in like summer school, I'm guessing, because it was middle of June, like late June. And like my stepdad came late. Like, I don't remember fully, like it's like kind of spotty, but I remember somebody like telling me like, like the, like a noon duty almost that worked for the school, like, Oh, someone's going to be here soon. But you could tell, like, she knew something was wrong. And I still remember the feeling of just like, probably what I would identify now as like anxiety, like this unknown. And I had no clue. I had at this point my baby brother was like 10 months old. So I was, and my mom had been home with him. So I'm like, maybe something happened to him. Like, I hope he's okay. Right. And then I ended up going to like a friend's house for a little bit. And what's interesting is she lived, I lived on this like really, really long street. Like in my mind, I think it's like probably a mile long. So I remember going a different way to her house. Like we didn't pass my house. And I thought that was so weird, but kind of just like distracted. And like, we were throwing peaches at each other and played in the pool. Like it felt like a really long day. And I still remember that moment. Like my stepdad came and picked me up. I don't remember who else was in the car besides my stepdad and my grandma and myself, but the look on my grandma's face is like embedded in my mind. Like that's her daughter. Like, and I just said, like, is it about Devin, which is my little brother? And she like shook her head. No. And then I said, is it about mom? And she's like nodded her head. And I said, is she okay? And she just shook her head. No. And I still didn't really know what that meant, you know, and fast forward to, you know, being told and everything, it took me a minute and to even like for it to click, right. It's like that instant denial but I still have this like guilt. I remember making a joke. Mac makeup was like so big then nineties about like, well, do I get her makeup? Right. And it was just like my way, I'm sure of like coping in that moment. Like, but it's just so interesting how we respond to these situations. And, you know, I'm looking at my older brother who unfortunately is the one that found my mom and has had a lifetime of dealing with that. But he wasn't crying. Like he was just like standing there and we've talked and he's like, I remember feeling, he's like, and I feel so bad for this, but feeling so annoyed watching you cry. Like when you found out, like, and at this point, this is, you know, probably 10 hours after this had happened that morning, but it's just such a crazy, it's crazy to reflect back and think of that as me, because I have so much like sadness for this younger version of myself. Like, like, I can't believe like she, but I went through that. It's just a really weird thing. It's crazy. And I'm not like a, in this toxic way, like, oh, everything happens for a reason. Like there's no reason that should have happened. Right. Like I'm really thankful for who I am. Like having had experienced that, like this has allowed me, unfortunately, those are the cards I was dealt right to really be in a, a different position where 
I had that relatability. And though I've never experienced what that's like to want to take my life, like on my worst day, I, I don't, I cannot attest to what that feels like. I have so much empathy for people that do. And I think that I get to bring something to the table for people when it's appropriate for that self-disclosure for people to see like, oh, this person does get it. And finding ways to support people through that, because I just can't help but wonder, like, had something been a little bit different that day, right? Like we can all do these what ifs, but had somebody recognized the warning signs and somebody said something, had there, I don't know, been a pop-up that said, call this, right? Like, would she have tried one more day and could that one more day have made a big difference? So I just feel like I'm a big one more day person. We're not going to like fix everybody's problems in a second, but just really like focusing on the relationships with people. And so I want to ask, I want to ask the question and it it was the question that had come up for me when you were answering the last one and you were like, ask me how I feel. And that would be a different story, but I can make it a little bit more directive, which I think might be helpful. Do you remember the day that it did hit you where you were like, oh, like this is what happened. And like, it's a forever thing. So no. And yes, to something interesting, but I will say what's fascinating. I didn't know how my mom died for probably close to a week. I don't know what I thought. I have no clue. And to me, I'm like 10 years old. Like I was like fifth grade, like I'm shocked, but I didn't know that that was a thing. Mm -hmm. So when I learned and I would hear rumblings, right? So I was going to a private Christian school school church at the time, I would hear rumblings of what parents were saying. And that was really disheartening. And I think it hit me in some ways then, like hearing how people were talking about her. What were they, what were they saying? How selfish it was, how she was going to go to hell. Cause that's what happens when you kill yourself. Right. And again, even just the word using the word committed, which I didn't know to reframe until like maybe a couple years ago, but that word just carried so much stigma there. Like it felt like people were talking about somebody that wasn't like, that's not who she was. And why is that all we're talking about? Like, what about every other part of her, right? Like this human aspect of this like whole person, not just this one piece. And so to hear other people talking about how selfish it was for her to do that to her kids and her family, I was like, and it made me question like, well, am I, should I think she's selfish? Should I be mad? You know, but I do remember, and this like one actually, always makes me so sad. I had this little like journal that somebody had given me. It's like foam with a little elephant on it. I'm pretty sure it was like, Elise needs a journal and like somebody found it and gave it to me. And I remember writing in it literally. And I came across this not too long ago, maybe a couple of years ago, thinking that older me would read it and believe it. So I like lied in my journal and I said like her last words were, I love you. And they were to me. So like, I remember like writing that, wanting to believe that to be true, that those were her last words. And like, that always gets me. So I don't remember that exact moment, but little moments, like, I think just like little moments of being at the house and like, okay, she's not going to like come down the hallway. Right. You're not going to hear her footsteps. We all know growing up with certain people, there's certain footsteps that you hear, like, She used, she had an expedition, the way her foot would come off the brake. Like there's these little sounds that like, I think you just always have these little moments of like, oh, I'm never going to get that. 
So in a long winded way of answering that, I feel like there's still times that it like hits me different. Like, yeah. Remembering like, Oh, she's not gonna be my wedding. She's not going to get to meet my kids. Right. And so, and of course there's little ways that I like do things to still keep like her memory alive and in ways that I'm like, well, again, these are the cards I was dealt. So how can my kids quote unquote, have a relationship with this person that's no longer here, but there are still times that it's like, dang, like what a loss for her to not be here to get to experience, like seeing me as like a woman and seeing my kids and getting to know my husband. And like, you know, I always like think of that relationship that I wish I could pick up the phone. And just like when I, you know, have friends who call their mom, like, Oh, I want that, you know? Yeah. And I have amazing relationships with my dad and my stepmom, who's like my bonus mom. And I have like four parents. So I'm super thankful for that, but it's, there's always like, you know, no one's a replacement for a loss. Did you ever have a discussion with your stepdad about if he saw any signs or if he knew anything or, or with anybody else in your family. Yeah. So interestingly enough, and I doubt he would ever listen to a podcast, but mm. to this day, he, I don't think I've had more than a five, 10 minute conversation with him about my mom. He cannot talk about her without breaking down mm. and he's remarried and happy and in love. But I do, I sometimes am very curious of like what he knew and didn't know. And not in this, like, oh, he's hiding it way. Just in this, I always, I think in the last few years, I've been curious of like, I wonder if she was ever expressing like being sad or, you know, whatever that would have sounded like. My older brother can, he's like, I remember mom having like crying spells and just like hearing her crying. I didn't know that. But I wonder if there were conversations that were happening and maybe my stepdad wasn't, I guess, maybe attributing that to like, how, how like bad it was for her. So I can't help but wonder again, making some assumptions that there's a lot of like guilt there too. Yeah. Oh, I, I should have known or whatever that might be. I know that, I mean, again, maybe some assumptions, but the way that she died and I don't want to like go too much into that, but he, it was with a gun and they were his guns and he was the only one that had a key to the gun safe. So like, there's these little things, but she had taken the key off. It was very like planned out. So I do just think like, it's probably really hard for him to go there. Yeah. But yeah, like, as far as I know, I mean, I know that she, like my dad, my biological dad had known her since middle school, right? Like they dated, had two kids together. They divorced, married and divorced really young, but he like in hearing later, like I hear stories and I'm like, oh, okay. Like she struggled. I know there was some substance use when she was in high school and stuff. And I just think her past was like a lot darker than we ever like really saw. And I wonder how much of that was just like not dealt with and like kind of pushed down. And if it just was resurfacing and had nowhere to go or she didn't know what to do with it, you know? Thank you for sharing about this. Yeah. How do you respond now when you hear about people who have taken their lives and, or when your clients are struggling with those thoughts. I used to experience a lot of, man, I always get counter-transference and transference mixed up, whatever the word is. <laughs> I know. So do I. I'm always like, I have to Google it. All, every <laughs> time. One of the every time. <laughs> <laughs> but I used to experience it a lot in child welfare. So I remember being out on this investigation one time and I intentionally pretty much if I read an investigation and the primary concern had to do with, let's say a mom who had attempted suicide, right. And we were going out, I would not take those. Like 
that role, it could be a dad, it could be the mm-hmm. child. I could handle that. I could not handle a mom suicidal. That was like a really big trigger for me. And I was out in this investigation and that was not in the referral. We didn't know that that's what was going on. And in that moment, as I'm talking with the mom and sitting with this human being in front of me, she shared like how suicidal she was and her plan. And that was like, she basically told me that at some point that was how her life was going to end. And I could not help. And she had a son who was around the age that my brother was when he found my mom, like this sense of like overprotective, like, how could you do in my mind? Didn't say this, right. How could you do this to him? Like, have you thought about, you know, all these things and dealt with it how I needed to had it. And then I went back to the office and I pretty much like went to my, my supervisor at the time and said, like, I cannot take this. And that was a really big shift for me because trauma response. I've always been like a perfectionist and people pleaser and like really great work ethic and always like I get awards at work. Like, I just feel like I've always been that person. And this was probably the first time I can remember setting a boundary. And it's not even like that shouldn't be a big deal. That should be respected. But with the fear of like thinking, well, what if, you know, this person thinks that I can't do my job or like, and that was really hard. And thankfully that's not at all what the response was. That was my first time. And then that also gave me really like some awareness that I really maybe hadn't dealt with it as much as I thought I had. So I've gone to therapy a few different times, like since that had happened, it really wasn't until I'd done EMDR last summer after what I at least perceived as a potential kidnapping from my son, Mm -hmm. where a lot of stuff about my mom was coming up and that I think the EMDR like shifted a lot for me. So I wonder sometimes had I like had some of that treatment prior, like would it have been as triggering? Would I've been able to have like had that conversation, but now currently in my role, it's so interesting. And I wonder if you're like this too, but I think there's these like professional expectations and boundaries and all these things that absolutely are so important. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to suicide, like this is just my take on it. So I'm like, I'm going to stretch myself however I feel is best if it means keeping this person alive. So I've had a few, like, I'll just, I kind of call them students, but a few students, clients, whatever you want to call them, who have like shared like later on the road, like if it wasn't for you, like I wouldn't be here. If it wasn't for you that day or the relationship, whatever it might be, right? And that's like so powerful to stick. And I think it's, it reminds me because there's things that I do sometimes where I'm like, okay, if I was a therapist in an outside setting who doesn't have access to these kids five days a week for them to come and see, I don't think that this would have been established like this. Mm-hmm. So I have kids when they're in that state that sometimes I see every day or twice a day, or I sit with them in the middle of their crisis for six hours because that's what they need. And it, yeah. and it is so different. And I'm not a, I'm not at the hospital, right? This is not them on a hold. This is just me as a human being sitting with someone in their pain And the assessment will come and I'll figure out where they're at. But I just, I think that is the area that I'm most, I don't want to even say willing, but like people just deserve to like sit in that. And I think oftentimes people, when they're experiencing suicidal ideation, the first thing is people just want to get their like checkbox out and be like, okay, do you have a plan? Mm -hmm. Where are you at? Well, you're not even going to get the right information if you haven't established like a relationship or like let some, like sit with someone in their pain for a minute. Yeah. So to me, that's like, the area that I mean, like I write, I'm trying not to like share too many specifics, but like, I have a few students that I've written cards to like, yeah. If you're ever feeling this way, I want you to like pull this out and I want you to remember these things. Yes. And I've had them come back and say like, yeah, I pull out your card. Right. 
And I just feel like I have my ways of connecting again with teenagers that allows them to feel like they can tell me because yes, of course, especially, I mean, there's laws that we have to follow and there's certain guidelines that unfortunately for some people, especially when they don't want to be, are going to be hospitalized because at the end of the day, that is the way our system works right now. Mm-hmm. And I don't want people to think that just because I'm struggling with suicidal thoughts, even if they have a plan when they're in my office means they're automatically going to be hospitalized because mm-hmm. I've also had the same student with the plan ready to go who sat with me for four hours and then you watch them decline and then we can safety plan, right? Like, so I think it's just really being like adaptive and like not just focusing on the covering my ass because that's what I feel like so much of agency shut down your throat. But like, I want to know that, yeah, like if something were to happen, did I do everything I could do? And I would rather truthfully be like in a situation where somebody's like, I don't know, like you should have, they should have just been placed on a hold and like honored everything else. Like, Safety mm-hmm. is so important, but so is that support piece. And I, I think blind safety with this is just a huge issue that I have in this area. You yeah, know? I agree with you. I like, it's nice that you can see your kids like every day of the week, if you want to, because you have access yeah. to them. That's really great. I feel like for me, there's like been times where I've done things that other therapists wouldn't do for my like addiction clients. Mm -hmm. But then I actually had this, like one of the most like prominent therapists in Santa Barbara come and work for my treatment center before I sold it. And she would do the same things. And Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, maybe like we're all kind of doing this, but none of us wants to talk about it. Like one time I got a text from a client at like two in the morning and she was like, I picked up heroin. I'm going to do it. Mm -hmm. You know? And it was like, two in the morning. And like, I just happened to have my phone and like, I went over there and I took it from her mm-hmm. and I went and threw it in a dumpster and she like went to sleep. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I just feel like other therapists would be like, Oh, well, like, what's your address? I'm going to call the police. And like, and I understand like, sure. Like maybe some mm-hmm. people want to do that, but like I had a, I had worked with this client for almost four years and I just felt like that was the better thing to do. It's like, you're, yep. you're going to get the actual care. And sometimes it's not, sometimes it's not like, oh, hey, every therapist should just go take the drugs from their clients when they're doing right. them. But right. in this instance, I knew that that's what was best and that that's what was really going to make her know like that she doesn't need to take them and that I'm serious, that like I'm here for her. And like, it wasn't a boundary crossing because it's not like, oh, now we're friends forever. Now and you can call me anytime. <laughs> and I'm like, I'll come and pick up your drugs. You can text me in right. the middle of the night. Like it was just, right. just a one-time thing. And I feel like that's so important is like discretion of like what's best. And like one thing I always ask, which I'm sure you do too, is like when and you already kind of mentioned it, did I do everything I could? And I've like thoroughly read through the standards and it's like, like you have to decide as an individual provider, like if you were sitting in a courtroom, could you justify that you not following the ethical guidelines was the best decision for the client? Yep. And like, can you prove that? Yep. And like, I, I always think about that. I do too. And it's again, sometimes I'm like, it's almost like I wish there was more guidelines. And at the same time, mm-hmm. they can... I don't want that because it restricts and it gives, takes away from the clinical discretion for us to go, this is what I believe is best. Right. And if we've gotten to this point, then I want to be able to make a decision based on all the information I have and to pull in all the nuance and the gray with it. Because again, like you just said, at the end of the day, and I have that thought all the time, if this ends up in court, can Mm -hmm. I sit here and like justify my why? And can I live with it regardless of what happens? Right. 
And yeah, that's where I stand. And I've made mistakes along the way. When I first started working, there was kids, my first year, we had so many 5150 mental health holds, so many. And it was almost like, okay, like we're, this is good. We're like preventing. Mm -hmm. And now like for the most part, I mean, I've had maybe a couple kids this year that have wanted to go on a hold. Like I want to go, I do not want to go voluntarily. They want to go on the hold. Okay. I'm going to like meet them where they're at. They know what they're whatever. Right. Yeah. But for the most part, it's like a conversation of even like trying to encourage the voluntary process, if that's where they need to be. And for them to go on their own Mm -hmm. or their parents to take them so that they're not traumatized by being strapped down to an ambulance and taken to a crappy, yeah, no offense, but like community place where it's not what they wanted. And half the time, a lot of these places are releasing our kids within 12 hours and they're not getting the whole picture anyway. So I'm like, I spent eight hours with that kid getting all the information about where they're at for them to go and you not read between the lines of like what's really going on. You're just take, again, checking off a box and then they're back. And that's one of the things that's frustrating, but also awesome is that they're back and I know where they're at. So I pull them in my office. Right. And I'm like, okay, well, I guess here we go. Let's do this again, you know, and see where we're at. But it is really such an honor because I think what's so neat about this role is I have the ability for this like relationship that sometimes is, I was just telling another student about this today, has dual relationships. That's just that way because of like, for example, I'm like an advisor for the teen suicide awareness prevention program at school. So I have students that are in that program who I also just so happen to see for services right at school. So I'm having these like different dynamics with them. But it's like, I get to see so much of these kids, like for so much more than just like who they are in that session. And that's like a really unique opportunity for them, you know, completely. For those who struggle with these thoughts, what suggestions do you have for them? You know, I was thinking about this, like I could sit here and like say all the clinical stuff and I just actually don't want to do that. I think it's like, for me, like a relationship, like having a support system of some way, just like one person is so important. And I, it's so interesting when you sit with somebody in their shit, and I'm sure you've heard this with clients and stuff, but when you sit with someone in here, right. So often we hear like, it's not that I want to die. It's that like, I don't want to feel this way anymore. And this is like the only other way out. And so I really am just like, like try to validate that. And I think once people even hear that, so if they're not the ones saying it, like them hearing that sometimes is like, like exactly. I'm like, okay, so like you are not alone. And I know that sounds so cheesy and it's like kind of thrown around, but like, it's such a balance of like, I don't want to normalize it, right? Because having suicidal ideation or wanting to die by suicide is not a normal response to adversity. Mm-hmm. And it's not uncommon either to be experiencing that. And then to know, right. I think of like suicidality on like the spectrum or thermometer, like just because you're here doesn't mean that you're going to get here. But if you don't talk about it here, like Mm -hmm. on the lower end, what's happening. So I just, I really just want people to know, like, if you're scared about like going to the hospital, because you're having these thoughts, like, please know that obviously there are some therapists that maybe unintentionally or intentionally are doing harm, but do your research. And if you're finding somebody to talk to that, maybe make sure they specialize in that area or you can ask hypotheticals. Hypothetically, if somebody were to share with you, right? Like, and get a feel because 
I love ultimately it. you just, that relationship is so important with the therapist, with a friend, with somebody that you feel like you can be your like vulnerable self to like share where you're at. That's going to listen to you without immediately just trying to fix it, but just like sit with you in your pain for a little bit, you know? Yes. The last thing I'll say with that too, is I learned about this, like reasons for living inventory. What mm-hmm. I love about it is when I'm exploring with kids, like what's one reason worth living, you know, a lot of times I get like nothing. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we pull out this inventory and I love it because it really like, there's like a hundred questions, I think. And it, and you rate them like on a one to six or something like that of like importance. And it really, I think is eye-opening for people when they're in this state where it's kind of like tunnel vision, like they're only seeing that this is like the outcome that they want right now. It expands out a little bit to like, oh, maybe they didn't consider this. Right. But I don't think there's any like magic solution to any of this. The biggest thing I tell like my kids is it's actually like a book I read to my son every night. It's like little by little, you're going to start to feel better. And it may not be today. It may not be tomorrow or a week or a month from now, but little by little things will shift. And I love seeing when they, when I start to see that shift and they start to have that insight, like reminding them of that perspective, like now you have it. See, you've been through, you went through the cycle where you felt it. And now you're feeling a little bit better. Like, hang on to that make a video recording of yourself talking about where you're at right now. So that when future you maybe goes back into that space that you can remember, you did get through it because in those moments, it's going to feel like, fuck it. No, I'm not. Nothing's going to get better. It's going to continue to be like that. You know? Yes. I love that. For those who have lost someone, what would you like to say to them? I feel like it's so cliche, but I'm just like, so sorry. It's such a, it is such a unique loss because, you know, and I'll speak for myself too, but like you deal with so much of the attachment issues that come from that. Right. I think what was like a really fascinating intellectualized fact that I learned that helps me is like this whole idea that really negates selfishness around suicide is that when people die by suicide, there are theories, right? We believe that most people feel like they are a burden, which completely negates the fact that they would be doing something right. It's not selfish. That really helped me. And I hope that can like help somebody that's maybe in that because I can understand like if my husband were to die by suicide tomorrow, I would be livid. I would be distraught and sad. And I could understand why people feel like it's really selfish. I, I get that. And I just think it's important to remember the other side of it and just to have these other perspectives that can hopefully help at some point to kind of just if see if there's any other way to think about it because we can get caught in our heads. And yeah, I just... It's such a, it's such a shitty way to lose somebody, you know, it's so sudden and often without a goodbye left with so many questions that you're never going to get answers to and living in this, you know, living the rest of your life, kind of wondering these things. It's, it's unfortunate because you may never get the answers to these things that you're looking for, but I think just connecting with like, you know, other people and I don't know, I could like see a support group being really great for that of people that have lost. So like, even like the, I think I went to like a NAMI suicide walk. That was really cool seeing all these people, right? Like walking around that have all lost somebody to suicide. And it, it kind of brings like this experience that you have where we don't really, not everybody knows somebody, maybe, you know, someone that knows someone, but to experience it and to be surrounded by people like who get it, even though it's different than your experience, like that is so powerful. Yeah. So important. I'm going to shift this last question a little bit. What is one myth about suicidal thoughts that you would want to tell the truth about today? 
Oh, I mean, I just think of like, if I'm having suicidal thoughts, like that, I'm going to do it almost like I think of like intrusive thoughts. Right. Cause I, I consider this like some form of like very low on the like thermometer of suicidal suicidality. Like I'm driving down the road and I have this thought to just like drive Mm -hmm. off. Right. I've had that. Right. Like, and I just remind people like, that doesn't mean I'm going to like do it, you know? Right. And I say that with even like homicidal thoughts, because especially like new moms going through postpartum and stuff, like you are sleep deprived. There's a lot happening in your body. Like I've had parents tell me like, yeah, I've had these like awful thoughts of like holding my baby under the water and I would never do it. But like, why is that crossing my mind? So just to remember that, like, just because you're thinking it doesn't mean that you're going to do it or that you're a bad person. Like everybody walking around right now has like crazy thoughts sometimes. And like, we're all just trying to like navigate it and figure it out. But just knowing and having a safe place to like talk about that with somebody that's not going to judge you and that can provide that education of like, oh yeah, that's like, if you notice my face didn't change at all because I'm not shocked to hear that, you know? So yeah, Yeah. I think there's just a lot of mess around that. I love that. Yeah. I get asked a lot, like, would you consider yourself recovered from Mm -hmm. borderline personality disorder? And, and then they're like, you know, have you self-harmed? Have you ever tried to take your life? And I like, I'm so afraid of physical pain. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I don't even want to get a splinter out. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I have thoughts, I have suicidal thoughts every day of my life, mm-hmm. but they don't have any weight energy behind them. Like, but it's constant. And like, and I'm like writing my book right now and I'm like learning about what thoughts actually are mm-hmm. and how they actually neuro, like neurologically develop. And it's like, we truly, like they just, our brains just problem solving. It doesn't have like logic or values mm-hmm. or morals. And so mm-hmm. if it's like, you know, I want to put my baby under the water, it's like, because your brain's like, Hey, that's a solution. Like it right. is, but, it is. but you are a person that has the ability to make a choice based on your values, morals, beliefs. And so like, you would never do that. So that's, right. I feel like that's where the, like, you are not your thoughts comes in. It's like, you are because your brain is having them, right. but you are so, you are not only yeah. your thoughts. And yeah. so I love that you said that because I feel like, like, that's like one of the things, like, I'm sure people are going to hear it on this episode now, but I feel like I haven't really been too open about that. Like I've put it a little bit that I like in small little sentence, little bullet mm-hmm. points, but it's so constant mm-hmm. and it's like, and I just feel like I truly understand people's minds that go there, but they would never do it. Yeah. And how many people are afraid to talk to their therapist or talk to their doctor because they're afraid that that if if that if their provider doesn't understand, like for example, something that I would understand or that you would understand, like, then they're just you know someone DM'd me yesterday and was like, "I'm afraid to get put in the crazy house." Yeah, like I have a doctor, but like I'm not being honest. Yeah, and I feel like that's really important. It is such a myth. It's like if you're having those thoughts, like you are a danger to yourself and potentially a danger to others, and therefore we must like take your life out of your control. And that's you're like the last thing that we want to hear. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like, and and I just hope. I mean, if people struggle with that, I mean, the best thing, like, learn to advocate for yourself too, in the sense of like start doing your research. And if somebody says like, this is what's going to happen, I, I would push back. Uh, actually, no, because I don't have a plan or intent right now. Right. Like I'm just sharing, right. And knowing that like, truly you get to be an expert 
And I do think that unfortunately there are systems, right? Like when I was an intern and stuff, like that's just what you, you hear suicide and you're like, oh, I didn't even know enough to know like how the spectrum works. It's just, and it's a very like, I'd rather be safe than sorry, cover your ass, but how much harm gets done when we're just covering our ass? Because I guarantee there's been people that even I've assessed who will never, at least to me, open up about suicide again because of the experience that they had, right? And so I just hope that even for like new therapists or new mental health professionals listening to this, like really, really learn about this. If you're doing crisis Mm -hmm. intervention, if you're doing suicide, homicide, you know, assessments, that kind of stuff, like really, really dive into it and learn because a lot of agencies will just have you, you know, cover it to protect and it's a liability and I get it. But at the same time, like these are humans and we've got to make sure that we're doing no harm to them first. Yes. Yes. Something I want to say as I think this is important. So I just kind of threw it out there. Like, yeah, I think I have suicide thoughts every day, like totally normal. I don't think it's normal to have them every day. It's a part of my personality disorder. And something that you mentioned when you were talking about your mom was that she had kids young and then she kept having kids and kids and kids. And you're saying she had a difficult upbringing and might not have had the ability to process all of that because she essentially started her adult life young and it was sort of constant. That's actually why I'm still have not had another child mm. because, because it's not normal to have these thoughts every day. And although I never would act on them, I don't know if that would change if I felt like my environment was more out of my control yeah. And every time you have a baby, it adds another 18 years. And that's very overwhelming. And I'm already very overwhelmed. And it's making me a little emotional, but not really. But it's like, for me, it's emotional because it's like, I want more kids. Yeah. And I don't want to end up feeling like that. So, but I think it's super important that if anybody's listening and they do have those types of thoughts, whether they, you know, even if they believe they will never act on them, it's important to be aware that it isn't normal to be, for it to be, be so constant and to like, do what you can to like maneuver your environment, the support system that you have around you so that, you know, get to know yourself too, just like you want your provider to get to know you and like do the most appropriate next step, make sure that you can do that too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So important. I always appreciate like, I'm like, you're showing your humanist. Like I do. I really appreciate that because it is, it's a heavy topic. And like, especially when you can like, you know, you pick up on these parts of people's stories and relate to them. And I also, am just like, so impressed at like the self-awareness to, to want what's best for you and for like your future baby and for Bodhi and your husband, right. To like be in a state where you can be the best version of yourself. And, you know, to know that there's potential for that to shift or just to like, kind of, I think there's like a healthy level of fear in that, right? Like, how do I navigate this and work through this so that I can be that person? I don't know. There's just a lot of, there's a lot of power in that. And I think it's good for people to hear because I don't know. And you know, this. a lot of mental health professionals, especially just present themselves as so put together in this pretty little box with a bow. And it's so not relatable to like what people are actually experiencing, you know? Or what they're probably actually experiencing. Exactly. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. What do you want the biggest takeaway to be from our talk today for the listeners? I mean, honestly, I just like my biggest, it's not even like a nothing fact-based. I just want like people to like, especially if they can relate, like walk away feeling a little more understood or feeling maybe a little more inclined to 
reach out or speak up if they are experiencing that maybe like a little less fear of like what, what could happen if they do, you know? And I guess even just having the tools or like confidence to like advocate and to know what their rights are a little bit when it comes to that. And mm-hmm. I know, I hope it brings comfort. I know it's a heavy topic and I know it's uncomfortable, but um, I hope it brings some comfort. Cause I don't know how many people are having these types of conversations, you know, there's yeah. a lot of fear around that. So, so back to you, <laughs> where are you at now? What's next for you and where can our listeners learn more about you and what you offer? So I am a high school social worker, school social worker. I, at this time, do not have any plans of shifting that, but I will say there was a pull to wanting to just do more, do something in addition to something that like, like I had a little more control over. And so I actually just filed my corporation for private practice. So I'm going to start doing that on the side in some time. It'll be big empathy therapy, my big empathy energy stuff. But you can find more about me on Instagram is primarily where I'm at, that relatable social worker. Or right now, my current website is thatrelatableSocialworker.com, where I have all my big empathy energy merchandise and fun stuff. Love it. <laughs> Final segment. Oh my God, you're a human. What is one unapologetically human thing that you do? Okay. What I love about this is like, I really am super like, I'm breaking it a little bit, but I'm, I'm kind of a perfectionist. I like things a certain way. I'm really clean. I am late to literally everything. Like <laughs> I was on the phone with my boss this morning at 729. He's like, we're, we're like making a joke with me, like something like, where are you at? And I was like, it's not even 730 yet. I'm good. Right but I'm late to things. I fuck up. Like I literally just had this whole quick conversation, but with my husband the other day where he was being vulnerable and I was so invalidating and like mean. And I was like, damn, like I literally like preach empathy and like validation and all these things. And like, I caught myself being so opposite of what I would encourage somebody else. Right. And I think it's good for people to like hear that. And I remember having being hard on myself and my husband's like, if you think that we are the only couple or like, you're the only person, like it's just, people don't always talk about it. Right. And I think it's again, good for people to hear. Like, even though I know quote unquote, what I should do, what I should say, how I should do it. Like I don't always do it. And I'm constantly apologizing and like trying again and learning and growing. So I love that. therapists. They're just like us, you know? Yes. <laughs> therapists are us. We are human. That Absolutely. is true. Absolutely. Thank you, Elise. Thank you for yeah. sharing your story. Thank you for yeah, taking an experience that you've had and not only applying it clinically, but being open about it personally. It really helps a lot of people. Thank you for Absolutely. coming on. Thanks for listening to this episode of Human First. Please subscribe, leave a review. It really helps with being able to keep this podcast free and share it on your social media to help spread the message. Tag me at the period truth period doctor. As always, I'm glad that you exist. See you next week.